What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we're taking you through the best bits of Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert, Creative Living Beyond Fear. Creative Living Beyond Fear. This is all about creativity, about ideas, about inspiration, and a different approach, I guess, to getting ideas from the world around us and turning them into reality. She starts off with a story about the most magical thing that ever happened to her. So she'd finished her mega success, Eat, Pray, Love, and was looking for what her next book project is going to be. And she came across an idea that excited her tremendously. So she was told a story from her sweetheart, Felipe, about something that happened in Brazil in the 1960s. So at the time, the Brazilian government got a notion to build a giant highway across the Amazon jungle during an era of rampant development and modernization. So the Brazilians, they poured a fortune into this ambitious plan and all was going well for a few months and progress was made. However, it started to rain and it seems that none of the planners of the project fully grasped what rainy season means in the Amazon. So the construction project was immediately inundated and rendered uninhabitable. The crew had no choice but to walk away leaving all this equipment behind. So after months of rain, they discovered the jungle had devoured their whole entire highway project. Nature hit back and all their equipment was missing or stolen, and the bulldozers were sucked into the earth and disappeared forever. When Elizabeth first heard this story, she had chills running up and down her arms, the hairs on the back of her neck stood up, and in an instant she almost felt a little sick and a little dizzy. She said it was sort of like falling in love, or it was sort of like seeing some kind of alarming news on the TV. She'd experienced these a couple of times before, and she knew almost instantly that something really big and important was happening to her at this moment. It was such an intense emotional and psychological reaction. It doesn't strike often and she calls it inspiration. And that emotional and psychological reaction is what happens when this idea comes from the universe and starts inundating you. And this is how ideas work. She says she's actually referring to magic here, like literally in the kind of Hogwarts sense. She is referring to the supernatural, the mystical, the inexplicable, the surreal, the divine, the transcendent, the otherworldly. Because Elizabeth believes that creativity is a force of enchantment and it's not entirely human in its origins. So she's aware that like, you know, a lot of people listening right now, go, oh, it's not a very rational way of seeing things. It's very unscientific and you can't scientifically prove this stuff. But Elizabeth believes that the planet is inhabited not only by animals and plants and bacteria and viruses, but also by ideas. These ideas, she says, are some disembodied energetic life form. They're completely separated from us, but they are capable of interacting with us in strange ways. So whilst there is no material body to the idea, they do have this consciousness. They're floating around the universe and they're looking for a human host to take over. They're looking for a, a human collaborator that they can take this idea and manifest into something real. So this is what ideas do. They spend eternity swirling around us, searching for available and willing human partners. And when the idea thinks it's found someone, it might be you, who might be able to bring itself into the world, the idea might come knocking on your door and paying you a visit. And it will try its best to get your attention. Most of the time, people don't notice because you're consumed in your own drama and your own distractions. You might be sitting down watching TV, brooding over how angry you are at someone and the idea will try and wave you down for a few months or a few years, but when it finally realizes that you don't really give a shit about the idea and you're oblivious, it's just going to move on to someone else. Sometimes, rarely, but sometimes, you might be relaxed enough and open enough and welcoming enough to take this idea on as your own. Your defenses have slackened a bit, your anxieties have dropped a little, and this magical idea can slip through. 
this idea, it senses your openness and it starts working on you. That's where the chills come in. That's where the hair on the back of your neck kicks up. That's where the nervous stomach and the dizziness might start to buzz around you. You start to notice all these signs. It's basically uh, the idea working its way in. And in this quiet moment, you're going to ask the idea, what do you want me to do? And this is the point where you've got two very distinct options ahead of you. I think those universal reactions of your hair standing up and that sick feeling in your stomach and that weird feeling of excitement, I mean, it does it does happen. So, you know, there's a the rational part of you that might explain it away as something, but I don't think anywhere in science has a very logical explanation of what this is happening to you. So I think it's worth being open-minded to this idea of an idea coming in and knocking on your door. And as you said, man, we've got two options here. So when it comes knocking, you might just say no, and that's probably the simple yeah. answer. No's easy. No lets you off the hook. No is just, that's it. The the line's drawn there. The door's closed there. That's where the idea goes away. And for you who just said no, I guess congratulations to some degree because you don't have to bother about doing anything. Uh, you don't have to be sympathetic to the idea. The idea just wanted to be realized, but it knows, hey, if you're not going to do anything, I'm going to go off there and find somebody else. Now, most people say no a lot. Most people spend their whole life saying no and it's just a, a constant stream of no, 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 no and so these ideas start to learn that this is not the type of human collaborator I need and the ideas nah. start to dry up. Now, nah, the idea doesn't want to hang out with a no, 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 no person but every now and then you or someone, they might say yes mm. and if you say yes, it's bloody showtime. <laughs> yes, baby. Now, your job has become simple and difficult at the same time because you've entered into a contract with inspiration mm. And you have to see it all the way through to the end now. So you get to cooperate fully and humbly with inspiration and you're not the slave or master of it, but you're its a partner. And the two of you are going to be working together to make something interesting and worthwhile. So back to Elizabeth's story of magic about the Brazilian rainforest highway project. She felt this idea, she felt this inspiration and she immediately said yes. So she felt inspired for her. She was turning this idea into reality by writing a novel about it. And it was all about this, you know, this ill-fated highway across the jungle. The idea, it was epic, it was thrilling, but it was also daunting. She entered into the contract with the idea. She shook hands with it. She said, look, I promise I'm going to not abandon this idea. I'm going to cooperate with you to the best of my ability. Me as the human, you as the idea, let's collaborate together. I'm going to clear my desk. I'm going to empty my schedule. I'm going to start writing this book. And so she started writing about this middle-aged woman from America named Evelyn. She was heading to the Amazon and she started to work on this project. And this was the book, Evelyn of the Amazon. And she started and after a few months, she was really working hard and she was cranking it out. And something happened in her life and derailed the whole entire project. And life circumstances meant she had to put Evelyn away. But as she put Evelyn away, she said, hey, I promise I'm going to return to you after she finished her next project and dealt with her personal issues. And her next project in that instance was Committed, which is another one of her books. I'm sure you might have read Ashto. And then uh, <laughs> two years after all this happened, she finally went back to her idea, which was long left unattended. And she was eager to get back into it to retrieve her notes from the storage. She noticed right away that her novel was gone. So she dug it up, she dug up her old notes, she started to work on it again, but that feeling just wasn't there anymore. It wasn't as if somebody had stolen it, it wasn't like that literally it was gone, like the, the files were missing or anything like that, but it was just like that the living heart of the idea was gone for her. It had taken off, it had felt abandoned, you know, for two years she'd been working on a different idea. And she just didn't have that same sort of gusto to take into her work. Yeah, that Senian force had vanished, swallowed like bulldozers in the jungle, you could say. Ooh. 
bit of a. She didn't even say that. That was just you saying that. No, nah, she said oh, that. She, oh, damn. I Actually, I don't know if she claimed that anyway. But sure, so her research was there, but really the more she worked at it, which she did for a few months, and it just turned into dust and it didn't have any vibrant life force whatsoever. And look, it's probably fair enough. If, if you were the idea and you'd been waiting around, um, sitting in the files on the computer for a couple of years, you'd probably take off as well and, and look for some other way to manifest your way into existence in the world. So it's probably understandable that your idea has been lost. Now, if you do lose an idea, uh, Gilbert says, look, it's, it's okay to grieve for a little while if you must, but really, you just got to pull yourself back together, get back to work, look for the next one that comes along, be ready, keep your eyes open, keep listening, follow your curiosity, ask questions, sniff around, remain open, and just trust in the miraculous truth that some new and marvelous idea will be looking for a human collaborator like you every single day, and ideas of this kind are just constantly passing through us, so you got to let it know you're available and don't miss the next one. So this should all be the end of the Amazon jungle story, really, but it actually isn't. So just around the same time that the idea of her novel ran away, and this was in 2008, she made a new friend called Anne Patchett. She's a celebrated novelist. I've never heard of her, but I'm sure she's great. Anne from the pub. Anne from the pub, maybe. (laughs) They met one afternoon in New York on a panel discussion about libraries, and they became friends right away, and they actually started writing each other long, thoughtful letters every month which is pretty antiquated, but a lot of respect for something like that. Yeah, well, they said that, you know, they, they were in different cities, so they weren't going to see each other often. Neither of them really liked talking on the phone and they were both writers, so they were writing each other letters. And one day, there was this letter where Anne wrote to Elizabeth and said, hey, next time we're in the same city, let's catch up. I've got a cool idea to share with you. I've got this new idea about a book I'm writing about the Amazon. For obvious reasons, this caught Elizabeth's attention and obviously she had a similar idea, but it went away because she neglected it. So when they caught up, Elizabeth was all right, all right, I need to find out what your story's about. And Anne's like, all right, what's your story about? And they got, all right, Elizabeth, you go first. So she explained concisely, her story was about a middle-aged spinster from Minnesota who fell in love with her married boss. She gets involved in a harebrained business scheme down in the Amazon jungle, a bunch of money and a person goes missing. And the character is sent down there to sort things out. It's a love story. And Anne replied, And she was this nice, petite, friendly old lady. She said, you've got to be fucking kidding me. Mine is about this spinster from Minnesota who's been quietly in love with her married boss for many years. They get involved in this harebrained business scheme. They go down to the Amazon jungle. A bunch of money was lost. A person goes missing. So she goes down to send... So she goes down there to sort things out, but it's actually a love story. Man, that's not a genre, is it? (laughs) That's that's not like a... um, you know, a, a vampire typical story that everyone hears every sort of day. Yeah, it's quite specific. It's pretty wild. It's uh, you can't go to the bookstore and ask for the middle-aged minister to spin, <laughs> uh, spin stay in love with a married boss who goes down the Amazon jungle to find missing people. And that's just not a thing. It's very specific. Very, very, very specific, and very Down unlikely that details. two people are going to get that exact same idea through the irrational means of arriving at how ideas work. Yeah. So Elizabeth said, "Look, they weren't exactly the same. Like one of the women worked in construction." In the other stories, she was in pharmaceuticals. But aside from those nitty-gritty details, like the story, the idea of it was extremely, extremely similar. And in fact, they even tried to track down, Elizabeth tried to track down, when did she lose this idea? Anne was trying to think, when did I first get this idea? It turns out they could. it was pretty much that day that they hugged and they first met each other back in 2008. It was almost like this transfer of the idea from one to the other. So that is what big magic is all about. So that's what 
Big Magic is all about. It's all about Elizabeth's belief that ideas are like these disembodied pieces of energy that are floating around and looking for human collaborators. So the rest of the book is all about how do you remain open to these ideas, how do you capture these ideas and make them your own. Inspiration is always going to try its best to work with you, but if you're not ready or available, it may need to choose to leave you in search of another human collaborator. And that's what happened to Elizabeth, and it happens a lot. This is how it comes to pass. One morning, you open up the newspaper and you discover that someone has written your book, directed your play, released your record, produced your movie, founded your business, launched your restaurant, or painted your invention. I know I remember with my brother a few years ago uh, for those beer cups that you put onto uh, the top of the keg and it fills itself, not through the conventional means. Um, pretty specific. Maybe someone will come up with that anyway but yeah after six months someone else got that business idea and my brother thought oh fuck, could have been us we would have been loaded on jet skis by now also got a message the other day from a mate um and he was looking to make apps for grocery lines to make it free to just walk out of the grocery store <laughs> he just sent me a screenshot saying it's happening lol <laughs> I think they probably would have got there anyway. But Mate, I remember seeing that on there was this show in Australia called Beyond Tomorrow. This is literally 15 years ago. They were talking about how you can scan things when you put it into your grocery basket and then walk out. That was 15. Years. It's not a new idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think he's a bit dirty though. <laughs> but there's this idea of like multiple discovery in that when uh, Eat Pray Love got massive, Elizabeth was getting trolled by all these women writing in saying, oh, you've stole my book, you've stole my idea. When like obviously she didn't know this person and go out there and actually steal their idea. It's kind of interesting how things happen at the same time. Like Lyft and Uber, like there were these ideas of, you know, you have an app where you book a car and there's someone else driving around. They get this notification. They come pick you up. Like there were two exactly identical ideas happened by two very different people in two different parts of the country that just so happened at the same time. Yeah, it's pretty weird. It actually happened in a lot of areas of science like calculus, oxygen, black holes, existence of the stratosphere, the theory of evolution. There really isn't a logical explanation for why a few people can come up with the same thing in this momentary part in history. Like, how the hell could they? Mm. But to Elizabeth, this multiple discovery thing seems like inspiration hedging its bets. So it's fiddling with the dials, working with multiple channels at the same time to improve its likelihood of coming into the world. Yeah. If I was an idea, I wouldn't trust just one person to get it right. I'd sprinkle myself thinly across a few different people in a few different places. But it, it is kind of weird how all these things, you know, even like computers that all sort of happen at the same time by people born around the same time and they all um, completely independently came up with these ideas and it all sort of grew together. But I mean, the idea coming to you is just one part of it. So eat, pray, love, man. She it would have just made the rest of her life. She sold millions and millions of copies, one of the biggest books of all time. But all those other people who were complaining to her, oh, that's it, my idea, you stole my idea of the book. I mean, Elizabeth, I mean, she got extremely lucky that the inspiration came knocking on her door, but she actually did work like an mm. absolute maniac. She says she spun herself like a dervish around that idea until it entered her consciousness. And she didn't let this idea out of her sight for a single moment, not until the book was as good as finished. So most of your creative life is this hard labor. It's not about this freaky kind of voodoo style, big magic stuff. It does consist of this disciplined labor. So most of this is not fairy dust in the least. But sometimes it actually is fairy dust, she says. Sometimes in the midst of writing, you suddenly feel like you're walking on one of, one of those moving sidewalks like you're in an airport terminal. So like think about if you're carrying this huge bag uh, and then you hop on one of those moving sidewalks, all of a sudden, even though your bag's heavy, you feel propelled by some kind of 
exterior force. So something is carrying you along, something powerful and generous. Today, we're pretty uncomfortable in this modern world with the ideas of some sense of divine mystery. We might call it flow. We might call it being in the zone. If we look back to like the ancient Greeks and Romans, they had different ideas of what this divine mystery was. They might have called it this external daemon that was driving their creativity. They might have had like this some kind of house elf that lives on your walls who sometimes aids you in your labor when you're hard at work every now and then the the daemon or the house elf drops in and gives you a little bit of fairy dust to help you out. Uh, some called it a genius and rather than like rather than you being a genius, they said that you have a genius. So it's something that you have that every now and then propels you forward and drives you on in your work. Yeah, I think those today are uncomfortable with this idea of divine mystery and, you know, the rational types who say, hey, you're just in flow, you're just being in the zone. But it's interesting that back in the day, the Greeks and the Romans were explaining it a bit closer to how Elizabeth explains it, saying how we were actually occupied by this external force, which is your, your genius. So Elizabeth Gilbert defines creative living by posing this one central question upon which all creativity hinges. Do you have the courage to bring forth the treasures that are hidden within you? So she says that everybody has treasures hidden within them, but most don't have the courage to bring them out. There is a capacity, aspiration, longings and secret talents in you. Surely something wonderful is deep inside you somewhere. And Elizabeth is saying this with all confidence because we're all walking repositories of buried treasure, she says. It's one of the oldest and most generous tricks the universe plays on us human beings, both for its amusement and for ours. And the universe, what it does, it buries strange jewels deep within everyone, and then it stands back to see if all of us, if we're up to the task of going out and finding them. The hunt to uncover those jewels is what she calls that creative living, and it's the courage that we need to go on that hunt in the first place is what separates a mundane existence from a more enchanted one. She says that there's this uh, amplified existence, what she calls creative living. That's where we're uh, pursuing a life that is devoted to the arts. And as we said in many episodes in the past, art is not just you know painting something to hang on the wall. Art is a very, very broad term relating to all things creativity. It might mean for, say, Susan here, um, uh, she used the name Susan. It wasn't the Susan that we use in every episode, so that's kind of interesting. Uh, maybe we're... Same Susan though, yeah. Well, maybe we've got the same creative idea, yeah. Damon. Multiple discoveries. Multiple discoveries about <laughs> Susan here. But, you know, she might be figure skating several mornings a week and it's not because she wants to make money being a figure skater or anything like that. She's simply doing it just because there's a certain beauty and transcendence within her life that she can't access through any other manner. She can only access it when she's just figure skating. And quite simply, she just wants to spend as much time in that state of transcendence as she possibly can. I mean, that's what she's saying is creative living. There's a big differentiation between fear and courage. So she says there's fear everywhere, that all of us have so many fears and so many excuses. You know, we're afraid that we have no talent. We're afraid that there's going to be no market for our creativity. We're afraid that no one will notice us. We're afraid that our dreams are embarrassing. We're afraid we won't be taken seriously. We're afraid of being exposed as a hack or a fake or a fool or an imposter. We're afraid we're too old. We're afraid we're too young. We're afraid we'll be a one-hit wonder. We're afraid we'll be a no-hit wonder. All of these are fears and it actually it goes on for like five pages and they're all very valid. They're all very reasonable uh, and they can be fears that can stop you in your tracks. What you need to pursue the creative life is not fearlessness. It's not banishing all of these fears. 
what you need is the courage to recognize that these fears are real, but going about your creative life anyway. For Elizabeth, fear actually became boring because it's literally doing the same exact thing every day. At the age of 15, she figured out that it has no variety, no depth, no substance, no texture, never changes. It's never delighted or offered a surprise or a twist or an unexpected ending. It's basically just sitting there the whole time in the backseat going out, stop, stop, (laughs) stop. And the fear really has got nothing to offer uh, because it's just got that one emphatic word just repeated over and over, stop, 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 stop. And it's the same for you and it's the same for everyone. So in one sense, fear is pretty bloody boring. So all this long list of fears, you know, there's hundreds of different fears. It goes on for pages and pages and pages. They all sound different. They all sound like they're different things that we're afraid of. They all sound like different reasons that we're fearful. But really, as you say, all it is, it's just different ways of saying the same thing. It's different ways of ourselves telling ourselves to stop. So the thing with fear, the more you fight it, the more it's going to fight you back. And the less you fight it, the less it actually fights back. So what Elizabeth did, she deliberately made enough room for both her creativity and fear to come along for the ride. If she doesn't have enough room for a fear, then she doesn't have enough room for her creativity either. So they're kind of conjoined at the hip. So she's actually written this interesting letter. Anytime she's pursuing a creative project with her inspiration, she's found. She says, creativity and I are going on a road trip together. I understand you fear. You're going to be joining us like you always do. I acknowledge that you believe you have an important job in my life and you take it seriously. Keep doing your job if you must, but I'm going to be doing my job on this road trip and so will creativity. But understand this, creativity and I are the only ones who will be making decisions along the way, not you, Fear. Nice. It's a good letter. Yeah, I think Fear would leave after that. Yeah, I guess Fear's coming, but if Fear's in the backseat yelling stop, if you know who's driving and you know who's uh, the main passenger, which is creativity, then you're not going to listen to the the little kid in the backseat, are you? When Elizabeth was 16, she took her vows, now, not, her, not her wedding vows, but she invented her own ceremony and everything to become a writer. So she didn't make the vow to become a successful writer because that was outside of her control. She didn't say that she was a, a writer, but with some limits, you know, if I hit 30 and it's not successful, I'll do something else. She simply vowed to herself and to the universe that she would be a writer forever, regardless of what the result was. And she promised that she would never ask writing to take care of her financially, that she would always take care of it, meaning that she'd always try and support them both by any means necessarily. And this is what she's done by her day job. She's had loads of different kind of day jobs like cafe worker, shop store clerk, bartender, and all sorts of different jobs which she's had while she's been a writer. And even after she'd published three successful books in major houses, she always kept her day job. And it wasn't only until Eat, Pray, Love when she sold millions and millions of coffees that she finally allowed herself to quit her job. She said that she's seen so many people murder their creativity by demanding that their art pay their bills. So putting that kind of pressure on your art is a surefire way to sap all your creativity. I guess, you know, people say you're a sellout if you just, if you change what you do to earn more money or chase the fad or try to please everybody when you start to sell out. She says that whenever she's seen somebody force their art to pay their bills, the art has started to fall apart. Yeah, she says like if you start telling your creativity, you must earn money for me. It's a little bit like yelling at a cat. Like if, the, if you're yelling at a cat, it's got no idea what you're talking about but all you're doing is scaring it away because you're making really loud noises and you've got a face that looks really weird and you're just scaring creativity away when you're doing this stuff. 
She says that creative living is much, much stranger than most other worldly pursuits. The usual rules do not apply in any sort of way. You know, in a normal life, if you're good at something, if you work hard, you're probably pretty likely to succeed. The rules are clearly well-defined. The, I guess, the structures and the hierarchies are in place. There's a clear path ahead of you. You know what you need to do in order to get where you need to go to. But in creativity, in any kind of art, there are no rules and it's not obvious exactly what you need to do. You might be a success, you might have one hit and then you might never taste that success again. Or maybe you know you get some kind of rewards uh, but then very soon that rug is pulled out from underneath you. You've really got no idea what is required and what kind of success you could achieve. She's got the metaphor of a patron goddess of creative success and she can be like a really rich old lady who lives in a giant mansion on a distant hill and she's going to make a real weird decision about who gets her fortune. And you might be slaving away, working really hard your whole life, working as a maid, doing everything you can for this rich old lady. But then one day, she notices this cute young man on the third day chopping down the lawn and all of a sudden, she gives her life savings plus her Mercedes to this man and then you, who you've devoted your whole life to, this rich lady, you get absolutely nothing. And this is a little bit how the Patreon goddess of creative success behaves. The person who just started out in their career and written this little cheeky book that they did as a side hustle during the week and it becomes a bestseller, that person might get extremely successful and you, you might be slaving away and you might get none of that or one day you might get lucky. So she's really never obligated to give anyone guaranteed success We'll finish off with a story about Elizabeth and her friend, her friend who was invited to a big fancy party with all these other young aristocrats who was in this fancy castle in France. They promised it was going to be the most fabulous party of the year, attended by the rich, some of the most famous and most crowned heads of Europe. And best of all, it was a masquerade ball where nobody skimped on their costumes, so they said, dress up. So Elizabeth's nickname for him was Little Brother. So little brother here, he worked on a costume really hard that was going to be the biggest showstopper. He saw some materials from Paris and slaved away on his weekends to put it together and he got changed into the costume just before the event. So he entered the ballroom with his head held high. But then he realized there was one big mistake. It was a costume party, so his friends told the truth on that, but they missed one detail. It was a themed costume party. It was a medieval court and little brother here, he was dressed as a big red lobster. So he went to the top of the steps and all around him was the most wealthy and beautiful people of Europe. They had jewels and gilded finery and elaborate period grounds. And little brother here, he was wearing a red leotard, red tights, red ballet slippers and his face was painted red. He was also six foot tall and skinny with a long waving antenna on his head. So he stood at the top of the steps for this one long ghastly moment. He wanted to run away. Everybody's dressed up in these fancy costumes which were much more normal costumes than he was. They were dressed as they were going to a medieval court, he wanted to turn away and run away. It seemed like the most dignified response. Rather than walking out there and embarrassing himself in front of everybody, he thought it would just be easier if he didn't go to this party in the first place. He had worked tremendously hard on this costume. He was proud of it, but he just took this one deep breath and thought, what the hell am I going to do next? He decided to trust in himself in these circumstances. He bowed deeply and he walked onto the dance floor and started dancing. And when people were a bit confused and asked him, what are you? He said, I'm the court lobster. And then everyone was laughing and there was joy and he was the big trickster at the party. So this is how you've got to do it. If an idea comes your way, it wants to collaborate with you, 
Whenever you make something creative, original, imaginative, artistic, you're going to feel exactly like that guy standing in his red lobster costume in front of everybody else. There's going to be a big element of fear and hesitation. You're going to wonder if you've come to the right party. You're going to wonder if it's worth sharing this idea with everybody. And there's going to be an important moment where you need to take a deep breath and decide what you do next. For you to share your creativity with the world, you need to walk into that room with your head held high. Never apologize. Never be ashamed of it. Know that you've always done your best with the resources you had, with the ideas that came your way. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised that the ballroom around you is going to be more receptive than you could possibly imagine. Some might even be so supportive to think that the thing that you've brought to life is brilliant and marvellous. Mm-hmm.